Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. So again, uh, welcome to TriStar. My name is Tanner. Um, if I have not met you yet, I would love to meet you out in the lobby after a service. Uh, one of the exciting things that's happening this weekend is that we are continuing in the series called Margin that we've been in for the past two weeks. Um, and as Matt and I prepared for the fall, as we prepared for uh, the sermon series that we wanted to cover, uh, we felt like this was such a, a timely thing uh, to cover was because over the past probably several decades, uh, one of the things that we've noticed about American culture is that um, our culture is constantly squeezing the walls in on our finances, on our time, and on our relationships. And the Bible has never called us to be a slave uh, to what culture is dictating. It's never called us to live marginless lives, but instead it's called us to live in the freedom of the original design that God has given us. It's called us to have margin in our finances, margin in our time, and margin in our relationships. And so this morning what we're going to go over is how do we find margin or space in our schedules? Um, you know, we live in a world where we, we are bombarded with brands, social media influencers, uh, entertainment, telling us how we are to spend our time and our money. It, it, all of these different aspects of culture take time and money to try to figure out how to tell us where to invest all that we are into these different aspects of our life and we are trying to figure out where did all of our margin go. Um, so this probably comes as a shock to some of you that know me, but I did, in fact, graduate from college. I was not a college dro dropout. Uh, it was a tough four and a half years. That half of a victory lap was uh, well needed for me. Uh, but I actually graduated with a degree in communication studies. And so for four years, most of my college life was spent studying uh, the science of humanity, studying the science of how we interact with each other, verbal and nonverbal, how... Uh, do we take a marketing uh, angle and get people to buy our product? How do we get people to spend their time with us? How do we get people into our stores or come to our events? And so a lot of those four years that I was at college, I was studying how does the human mind work and how can we pull the strings to try to get people to do what we want? And it might not come to a shock to you, but there's actually millions, if not billions of dollars invested every single year in marketing, trying to pull your attention towards some type of way. Facebook and Instagram pay money to actually figure out how to make their social media platforms more addictive. They try to figure out ways to get people to spend more time on their apps. Uh, we live in a world where all of who you are is for sale if, we, if you pay the right price. And part of the culture that we live in today is that we take time for granted. 
We take time for granted. We don't realize that there is an original design that God has created for us to live in when it comes to our schedules and our lives. If we think about it, we have a modern-day uh, luxury that you can press a button and there's a robot vacuum that can vacuum your house all while you pop a, a, a pod into a coffee machine and get coffee in 30 seconds. You can also, at the same time that your coffee is being made, go on Amazon and order that one thing that you forgot to pick up at Target while also then going to the Kroger app and getting all of your groceries handpicked for you so that all you have to do is drive up and pick it up. That's if you don't do the Amazon grocery thing. I don't know what it's called. It's a little too fancy for me. But we think about all of this. I mean, dinner, you can just go through the drive-thru. You can do pickup. There's Grubhub. You can have people go pick up your food for you. We live in a technological age where we have made it so easy to do our household chores, to do the things that we need to do to survive, but yet I don't hear anyone telling me how much time they have in their lives. There's not been a single person in my entire life be like, Tanner, I have too much time. I just don't know what to do with it all. Because we come up with these to-do lists, we come up with what the culture has told us we should be doing, and we fill up our schedule as full as it can possibly go because that is the measure of success. If we are busy, then we are successful, and if we are successful, then we are meeting the standard of our culture. How did we get here? And how do we get back? I think uh, the first thing that we need to do is we need to establish how do we view time? How do we view our life in terms of time? And so there's three different views that I, I would like to present to you today of how we view time. First is the Eastern view, which is mainly in the Middle Eastern countries and Asian countries um, where uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, reincarnation are big beliefs. And so... Behind me, there will be a circle. I made it all myself, and so you should be really proud of my artwork. But Eastern view of time is this circle, where A and B are in the same place, and it's constantly going around and around. If you believe in reincarnation, then you believe that the end of one cycle is the beginning of another. So as we view time this way, the downfall is, is that what, what does one circle matter if you're going to be reincarnated or if you're going to start another uh, life when you come to the end, then what does it matter? Because you can always just be a better person next time. You can always do more next time. You can always uh, love better next time. But this circle of continual cycles is a downfall because it's not in the original design. Another way to view time is what I would think most of us in the room would view time, which is the Western view, which is that of a line, A to B. So A, you're born with nothing, and B, you die with everything that you've accumulated over you know, the 60, 70, 80, 90 years that you lived. And there's no second chances. So you were born and you were supposed to grind and work hard and get accolade after accolade after accolade and achievement and promotion and money and finances. And you're supposed to get all of this stuff so that when you die, you have achieved this long list of things. The downfall of this is what if you don't get into a career path by 21? You failed. What if you change careers at 40? Did you fail for the last 40 years of your life and you're just starting the now successful route? 
What if you messed up for a year and took a gap year? Because it's a straight line and the way that we view it is A to B, you, you don't get any of this back. But instead, you either fail or you succeed. And then we start basing our successes on what the culture has told us is success. A couple of cultural milestones that I've heard in my own life uh, as I'm almost 30, I'm a father, I'm a husband. This, these are the ideas that were fabricated in my mind from a young age from the culture. And I don't think that, let me say this, I don't think that any of these are wrong. I don't think that any of these are not worth shooting for. But I wanna let us know that there's space and margin that these aren't the milestones that are make or break. But here's some things that I heard uh, growing up is that if you don't have your career path secured by 21, then you'll never have a career or you'll be too late into it. I was lucky enough to start my career path when I was 22. Do I feel like I failed? No, I feel like God ordained my steps and moved me into that. And do I, if I change my careers in 20 years, then it's the Lord's plan. Another thing that I've heard is that if you don't have your retirement, your 401k, your Roth IRA in order by 30, then you're behind on the times. I understand that compound interest is a powerful tool, but also that should not be the milestone that I live from. Instead, I should, like we talked about last week, bring my finances to the Lord first and see what he has supplied and what he is calling me to do. If I had all my retirement settled and ready to go by the age of 30, I'll probably be doing really well by the cultural standards of today. But if I miss the mark on what God has called me to do with my finances, then I've probably missed out on a whole lot that he's invited me into. Another thing I've heard is that if you can't afford to retire by 65, then you didn't work hard enough or save enough. And again, all of these goals are achievable. All of these goals are valiant. It, it would be great if the stars aligned and all of this happened. But on the scale of A to B, birth and death, I don't want us to get into this mindset that if we miss the mark, then we have failed the previous 21 years or the previous 10 years. Because I think that there's a better way to look at it. I think that there's a better view of time. I think that there's a biblical view and if we establish a biblical view of time, then we can steward time as God designed. And so from the beginning, we'll go all the way back to Genesis. Uh, this design has shown that there are key aspects to it. This design has a rhythm and a cadence. For you non-musicians in their rhythm is just the beat behind the music. A cadence is how you approach the beats within the music. Life is meant to have balance and rhythm and cadence. It's meant to have ebbs and flows. It's meant to have seasons. And so I think a better way to visualize time is that of a spiral. Where instead it's A to B and you are born and you die, but I think instead... It's a spiral of seasons and rhythm. Genesis shows us this. In the creation story, Genesis 1, 14, it says that God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the days from the night. 
and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And so the precedent of, of rhythm is automatically placed into creation in Genesis 1.14, where he talks about day and night. There's a circadian rhythm that isn't just a fancy term to get you on melatonin nowadays. There's this actual thing that we have in our bodies called a circadian rhythm. When it's light, light outside, we want to be up and work. When it's dark outside, we should want to sleep. That's how it should work. We notice in 114 that it also says that let the light and the darkness be signs and for seasons. We have agricultural seasons where it's time to grow wheat. There's time to grow corn. There's time to grow watermelon. There's time to grow all of these things. Bears go into hibernation over the winter. There's seasons for everything that God has created in our world. And we see at the end it says for days and years. And so we notice that God has already ordained this rhythm to life, to time from the get-go. Because remember, God exists outside of time. Before there was time, before there was existence, God was there. So God didn't need time. He didn't need days and nights. He didn't need seasons. But instead, he created the world so that humanity could live within this original design, this original creation. He knew that, that humans needed day and night. He knew that we needed seasons because we couldn't work all the time. We would need seasons for rest. He knew that we would have to have seasons for our agriculture and for our animals. Genesis 2, 2 continues this idea of rhythm and cadence. It says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So not only do we have days and nights and seasons and signs and years, but God has now ordained that there are weeks, seven-day weeks. Did God need to rest? It's not really explicitly said there, so I'm going to assume no. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. I don't think that God needed to rest, but instead he wanted to show us how it was to be done. And that brings us to our first truth this morning is that God created time to have a rhythm centered around rest. It says on the seventh day that, he, that God rested, and that's what we call Sabbath. Sabbath is kind of a word that we've kind of lost over the last decade. A couple of years ago, people would consider Sabbath just a Sunday morning. If you were in the religion of Judaism, you would probably consider it on a Saturday but it was a day for us to rest. And so we decided to put our church services on the Sabbath. I don't know if you're a part of the setup teardown crew, uh, but today is not much of a day of rest, am I right? I don't know about you, but trying to get your kids awake and dressed and ready for church is not really a day of rest, is it? And so maybe we've missed the mark because we're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Because I think we need to shift our view from God's perspective to Adam's. Because in the creation story, we read that God spent six days speaking the world into existence, doing all of this work creating, 
and on the seventh he rested. And if we look at it that way, then we'll say, you know what? We have to work hard for six days, and then we've earned our rest day at the end of this period of time. But in the creation story, Adam wasn't, Adam had not been created yet until the sixth day. It says on the sixth day that God created Adam, and Adam's very first day on earth was the seventh. Meaning that we are to start our week with rest. We are meant to start our week from rest. If we are to look from Adam, who is the only person that we can really identify with in the story, because I'm not God, but I am a man like Adam, Adam started his week with rest. His first day on earth was God's seventh day, where God and Adam had communion and restoration together. And then it says in Genesis 2.15 that God gives Adam his duty as a human, setting the precedent for everyone that would follow, and God gave this duty to Adam and all of humanity, and that is to cultivate the land. That doesn't mean that all of us need to go and get our gardening tools and start cultivating our yards. But instead is we are to bring culture to the place that God has allowed us to live, work, and play. We are, help, we are here to help set the precedent of the original design where God has placed us. Adam was to name all of the animals in the garden and work and toil in the garden where God had placed him. And we are the same. But it has to start from Sabbath. And so I think it's easier to clarify what Sabbath is not before we start talking about what Sabbath is. Sabbath is not just a church service on a Sunday morning. Sabbath is not turning off every electronic device in your home and sitting around a table lit by one candle and just staring at your Bible for 24 hours. Sabbath is not this time that's legalistic and trying to follow the, the Old Testament Jewish standards, although some of them are really helpful. Sabbath is a time of rest and communion with God. The, the root word of restoration is rest. On Sabbath, we restore ourselves to God and his kingdom. We commune with him. We learn with him. We enjoy communion with our community around us. And so with our truth, our first truth of today, I want to give you guys our first challenge of the day, and that is to start carving out time in your week to create a rhythm of rest. We can see that the rhythm of rest is all throughout Scripture. It was ordained from the beginning of time. Here in a little bit, we'll talk about how Jesus shows us an example of it. But I want you guys to start carving out time. And the Sabbath is not this legalistic measure that we either fail or succeed on, but instead it's a muscle that we begin to grow and strengthen over time. If I told everyone in this room to find 24 hours in this week for Sabbath, you guys would probably tell me that I'm crazy and it's not possible because we don't work out that muscle. 
And so what my wife and I started to do uh, last year whenever we started getting into this idea of Sabbath is we took three hours a week. And it's easy to cut that out of our schedule because it's one less show. Maybe it's one less dinner out. Maybe it's not going to the movies one week. Maybe it's saying no to one plan, but we cut out three hours and we took four easy steps to start Sabbath as a family. So the first step is that we started with our house. So I wanna challenge you to start with your house. Your house is where you're the most free. It's where the most margin exists in your life because you have created it to be a home for you. There's no distractions there outside of what God has given you, your family, maybe your fur babies, all of that stuff. But you don't have a multitude of other people It's where you can find the most rest because you don't have to worry about being on your best behavior. Start with your house. It doesn't have to be clean. It doesn't have to be pristine. You don't have to clean the house to have Sabbath. Instead, I would say it's probably easier to not clean the house to have Sabbath. Second thing that we did um, to help us with Sabbath is that we centered it around the table. Everyone eats. If you tell me you don't eat, you're a liar. So we centered it around our dinner table. We didn't make uh, extravagant dinners. We didn't uh, have, you know, these five-course meals. Our very first Sabbath together, I drove to Chick-fil-A, and I got our normal number one and number five for us. And we just sat down at our table, and we ate together. We've used Sabbath to explore new restaurants and, and get takeout from restaurants we've never had before and enjoy the time together. If you're thinking that there are rules to Sabbath, let me just eliminate those from you. Number three, the thing we did is that we grounded it in the Lord. We started off with prayer. And yes, I'm a pastor, but let me tell you, the first Sabbath I ever had with my family is I looked up a Sabbath prayer online, and it was awesome. I didn't have to come and try to come up with this grand prayer that was better than any prayer I've ever made in my life. I actually just read it off of this piece of paper that I printed out. And the fourth tip is to eliminate distractions. My wife and I turned off the music that we typically have in the background. I turned off the TV. I grew up where I would always have a TV on as background noise. I would sleep with the TV on. It was always there. And so it's a comfort thing for me is that there's always a TV on in my house. And I turned it off and there was dead silence, and I had to sit and stare at my wife and think of something to talk about, and it was glorious. Because the conversations that came up from that one night together deepened our relationship. We talked about the Lord. We talked about our plans for the future. We talked about what we thought God was doing in our lives. This was before my son Luke was born. We talked about what we thought Luke would be like, who he would become. And that's because Through these four things, we helped create space for silence, to create space and margin that our minds could wonder. Sabbath is a muscle. It's not a legalistic law. And I want to challenge you this upcoming week to take three hours out of of one day and have a dinner with your family. No distractions. Don't go out somewhere. And you'll start to see 
why God has created time this way where we rest together. And as you start to build this muscle, three hours might turn into four, might turn into six. You might get up to a whole half day or a whole day. And you'll learn that the laws and the legalism of it all is valued way less than the time with the Lord and the time with those around you. You can go out on a nature walk, you can go hiking, you can go play your favorite sport, as long as you're using it to rest in the Lord. Truth number two that we see today is that God designed time to move in seasons. Ecclesiastes 3 says this, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Just like we saw in Genesis, and as we look at that spiral, that, that illustration of how we should view time, we notice that there are seasons for everything. Some of you may be in this room going through a particularly hard time, a hard season. Some of you may be in a season of abundance. Some of you may be in a season of drought, a season of grief, of pain. Some of you may be in a season of great joy. But understand that the Lord has ordained it this way because he is constantly working in your life. And that spiral gives us comfort because there's no, we failed here and we've lost out on this amount of space. But instead we understand that time keeps going around and around. You may be in a season of parenthood, a season of empty nesters. You might be in a season where you're just trying to survive. But the ebbs and flows of life give us a great resource to understand our time. And that's the resource of remembrance. So here's challenge number two. So just as we understand that God designed time to move in seasons, challenge number two is I want you to take note of what season you were in and start the practice of remembrance. The tool of remembrance is one of the most powerful tools that we can have as Christians. Remembrance is the ability for us to look back and see the faithfulness of God in and throughout our life. When I'm in seasons of drought, I can go back and remember when the Lord has taken me away from that and he has brought me abundance. When I'm in a season of great pain, I can go back and remember when the Lord was with me, when he comforted me, when he cared for me in that season. When I'm in a season of great joy, I can remember the praises that I sang to God in those seasons. I had the pleasure 
and the honor to be with Jazz and Bryant last Sunday at her father's funeral. And for the whole week, I prepared to sing at the funeral. And there's a, there's a song called The Story I'll Tell that I was blessed to be able to sing. And the line just says that I know that my God did not fail, and that's the story that I'll tell. And that, for me, is a tool of remembrance that I can hang on to the testimony of her father, James. I can hang on to the strength of her family and see the joy in the community in the midst of great lament and grief. And it's in those moments that that remembrance will strengthen my faith. It will strengthen the muscle of my trust in the Lord. And so just like the challenge of taking note of what season you're in, I I did this last week. I just took a note down that, God, I think I'm in a season of planting. And I believe that you will not fail and you have not failed. And so I hope, whether it be six months, six years from now, I can go back on that note and I can remember what the Lord has done and how he has provided and how he's comforted. I can remember how he was with us, with our community, with that family in that moment. And I can trust him more because time comes in seasons and the Lord allows us to go through seasons so that we can grow closer to him that we can eliminate all of the extra stuff, all of the worry and the anxiety, because let me tell you, worry and anxiety take away from your time. And so I challenge you to take note of what season you are in this morning. We thrive as we live within the original design that God has given us. The rhythm and the cadence that God has already designed for us. a rhythm of rest, of space, a rhythm of trust and faithfulness, a rhythm of praise and joy. We thrive in that design more than we thrive in the design that culture has created for us today. And that brings us to truth number three, is that our time is given to us by God for us to steward. This is probably one of the most difficult ideas for me to grasp because it's not just like equations on a budget. It's not just, you know, stewarding your money is, is how you tithe, how you give, how you budget for your family, how you budget for those around you. But instead, we have to look at the time that we have day to day, week to week, year to year, and understand that God has given us a predetermined amount of time for us to steward that. Unfortunately, no one knows the day or the hour that the Lord will come back or the day or the hour that we will get to meet God. As I studied through this sermon, I remembered of my cousin Stephen who passed away at a young age and thinking of how he loved and he cared for his people and his family. Thinking how beloved he was in his community 
and how he stewarded his time to be in the places that God wanted him to be. And so I started to think of how should I steward my time? Is it this hour-by-hour calendar thing? Is it, do I just need to basically cut out anything that's not studying and praying? And I don't think that that's the answer. I don't think putting a legalism uh, spin on it is gonna help us, but instead I think we need to look at the life of Jesus and how he spent his time. So we see four things that Jesus did. First is he spent time in the community whether it was feeding the 5,000, whether it was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, whether it was calling Zacchaeus down and saying, I'm gonna have dinner with you at your house, at your dinner table, whether it was meeting and having dinner with the marginalized of of the community or it was having a one-on-one conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus spent time in his community. And so for us, the thing that we can look at is how do we spend time in the community that God has brought us to? Our mission here at TriStar Church is to bring the gospel to the places that we live, work, and play. And so basically, just start listing those out. Here's where I live. I live in Farragut, Tennessee. Here's where I work. Say, it's Oak Ridge. And here's where my hobbies are. For Nathan, he does uh, disc golf, and so here's all of the tournaments that he's gonna be at. Here's all the ones he's gonna win. Lord will and creek don't rise and say, Lord, what have you called me to do in these communities? It could just be serving with us on our beloved Sundays. It could just be a part of uh, what we're doing here in Farragut, but spend time and steward time into the community that God has called you to. It doesn't have to be the place that you live. It can just be that God has called you to a specific place. The second thing we, Jesus, we see Jesus do is that he spent time with his friends. He had 12 disciples that he was with almost daily. And Jesus spent time with these 12 disciples. He broke bread with them. He shared joys with them. He taught them. He learned from them. Maybe, I don't know how that works, being, you know, God and Jesus at the same time. But he spent time with the 12 disciples. And so for you, this could just be your friend group from college or high school. This could be uh, one of our small groups that we call missional communities that meet weekly, bi-weekly, monthly. But Jesus spent time with his friends, and so we are called to do that as well. A third thing that we see is that Jesus spent time with his family. Not only did he spend time with his mom, but he also spent time with Mary Magdalene. He spent time with the three, uh, he had three disciples that he considered closer than the other 12, or I guess the other nine. And with these three, he shared the greatest depths of joy, the greatest burdens. And so this could be you spending time with your spouse, spending time with your kids spending time with those friends that have become family. Could be part of our discipleship clusters, which is two or three together, just living a life of discipleship and kingdom-mindedness. The fourth thing we see Jesus do is that he spent time in solitude with God. It was so important for Jesus that there's six big examples. He spent 
solitude to prepare for a major task. He was baptized and immediately went and spent 40 days alone in the desert to prepare to be uh, tempted by Satan in Luke 4, 1 through 2, and 14 through 15. He spent solitude to recharge after hard work, after he had sent 12 disciples out to do ministry. He spent time to work through grief as he had learned his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded. He went away by himself. He spent time in solitude before making an important decision. Right before he uh, chose the 12 disciples, Jesus took time in solitude with the Lord. He took time in solitude in a time of distress before he was arrested and then crucified. And he also took time in solitude to focus on prayer. We see through this example that Jesus had a healthy rhythm of life, but he didn't have this strict hour-by-hour schedule. He engaged and he disengaged. He poured out and he filled up. He had regular practices, but he wasn't bound to them if the Lord had called him to something else. Jesus was busy, but he was never hurried. If you look through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that the example of Jesus is that of a rhythm and cadence in step with God. And so this morning we come, hopefully with a greater perspective of how God has created time and created us to steward that. To become more like God, we need to learn to have his priorities. We need to learn to use those priorities to produce a plan for every hour of our life. And then we need to put those plans into action. God's priorities and plans always produce results so we can follow in his footsteps and see what he will do with our lives. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come understanding that you have created us to live from rest, to live from communion with you, to live from complete connection and communion in the garden with you. I pray for every soul in this room that they would see the need for Sabbath, the need for strengthening the muscle of rest and and restoration in you, Father. Lord, I pray that as everyone in this room walks through a season of life, that they can see your hand on it, that they can see that you are with them and that you have ordained this time for a purpose. I pray that as we look to the life of Jesus, we can see how to steward our time together. We can see how to give our time that you have allowed us to have for the kingdom work. And God, by living in the original design of how you have created us, that we will begin to see margin created and space created so that you can have your way in our lives and our schedules that the margin that is created will, 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 will make its way towards growing us to be more like Jesus, growing us to do kingdom work. 
I pray that as we walk through this life that we no longer feel the pressure of culture and the American dream, but instead we feel the freedom that is what you've created. Thank you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarnox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers, equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.